Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Noisy Hedger podcast. Now, I had hoped to have a really great episode ready for today, all about the Edinburgh Fringe. I was up there a couple of weeks ago and I got to chat to a few comedians and got some interviews and I've also got another five episodes that I've recorded that need an edit but I haven't quite been as organised as I'd hoped to and I thought how about I just post a hello from me as the first episode and talk about a few things in my head, in my life or where I'm at right now and maybe if I have any listeners you can let me know a bit about you um, how you came across the podcast. I mean, let's face it, you're probably a friend or someone who's slightly crossed paths with me and sort of is feeling nosy one evening. Oh, I'm rambling and this is why I always struggle with the concept of podcasts because it's asking people to listen to you or asking people to listen to you listening to someone else, which feels a little bit bold. Um, so this week has been a bit busy and a bit um not strange um so obviously I'm recording this the day after the queen has died which is a bit odd obviously I'm not I'm not gonna sit here (laughs) crying about that or professing to hold any grief about it that I don't have um but it is a very strange time so obviously it's really interesting how people how people can argue over death as well and I don't mean that in a way of like don't have an opinion on the queen dying just like yeah we're all going to have a range of opinions about this anyone um in a position of power dying will provoke strong reactions from people one way or the other um and it's it's interesting to me how sort of black and white people are about this it's like yeah leaders will be loved by some and hated by others or many or whatever Um, The British Empire does stand for a lot of horrors. And I think it's because we're in this sort of global, globalized world. Is that, that's not that, you know, this, um, you know, the world is so much smaller now. We know so much more about what everyone else is going through. And and we're more open about the history of countries and stuff. But people are sort of losing sight of the fact that people who live in a country will support the leader, like a lot of people will. And and they won't actually care about atrocities because so many people will be thinking about survival and thinking about, for me, this hollow sense of nationalism, but a sense of nationalism nonetheless. Like for centuries, millennia, people have invaded countries, people have taken what they wanted. Um, the English have probably just been the best at putting a smile on it um, and, uh, I mean, you know, the British, we have quite a passive aggressive collective personality anyway and you know you only have to be in a bloody british company to to see how um full of polite emails it is to get across serious or aggressive points um i've butchered my point but does that make sense like it's kind of the british way is to pretend things are in someone else's best interests when they're in yours I know it's very reductive and hashtag not all Brits, but the the queen dying has been, it's a strange thing. And people talk about her being the constant in our lives. I wouldn't, I get that in terms of a constant backdrop. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, God save the queen. 
faces on stamps and um I mean, I can't even afford stamps anymore, so I, I, that hasn't affected me. And we don't use money, we don't use cash anymore. So, um, yeah, maybe this is the time to go cashless, just as King Charlie is going to get his face on, on all our money. But yeah, no, like she has been a constant, and there obviously is an affection. Like, I, I can't believe people are questioning people's affection for a leader, regardless of what they've done. Because ultimately, the whole point of leading, like the way countries do it, with big armies, with um, an entitlement to land and resources and all this kind of thing. I, I don't understand why people um, don't think that is in some way for the best for them. I don't agree with it. Obviously, I'm, you know, quite, do you have an ethical view on these things? But God, of course we're going to like respect and revere the person who is at the head of whatever we think our power is. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that in a right or wrong way. It's just like, yeah, that's what humans do. Like I lived in Iran when I was two till four. I have vague memories, um, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, 1989, I moved there, when, we moved there when I, in 1988 and Khomeini died in, I need to check this. <laughs> Khomeini died in 1989, I think. And um, we lived there uh, when he died and when it was the funeral procession. Uh, yeah, 1989, 3rd of June, 1989. And um, yeah, it was a big deal. I don't, I'm not going to pretend I remember it, but I remember the feeling about it. You know, it's a leader. They represent something. Um, but at the same time, yeah, when people say, oh, this is everyone's grandma and she died warm in her bed like every old woman deserves. It's like, fuck off. She died with like jewels surrounding her you know what I mean or like she had the best life in terms of you know riches and ease and comfort and I do think we talk about we talk about lives of passion and purpose and all this but a life of comfort can you I mean I can't imagine I have a comfortable life and I know it's all relative I say I have a comfortable life. I never know when my next paycheck is coming. Paycheck. Like, I never know when I have to invoice and chase people for money. Next. I've had 13 years of sort of instability when it comes to money, even though I've had sort of peaks and troughs. But just the comfort that some people get to live their lives in is is incredible. Um, like I said, it's all relative. But, for example, I did my ACL last year. And I'm still waiting for an operation and I still don't know what the best thing is. I don't know how to get the best help. It must have been wonderful, truly, truly wonderful to live your life trusting that if anything was wrong, you had the best possible care, the best possible help. I can't, I can't imagine it. Honestly, I know that sounds really silly. But to not have to be the one who's in charge of your own, yeah, health and well-being, um, just incredible <laughs> especially when you think how we go to the doctors and we're like you know in the UK it's all you have to fight for yourself you have to make a case you have to be the one googling what's wrong with you and getting second or third or fourth opinions you have to chase things up and all that fine and it's better than a lot of places better than most places in the world I know it's still a free health service but it does create a real deep instability 
because for me the one the one thing I would love for my life is just to know I'm healthy it's not just being healthy it's to know you're healthy and I know again doesn't exist because we can't know everything anyway it's all very rambling um I'm feeling quite subdued today it's not been the best day um it's it's funny when you want to talk about feelings, especially if you're putting on any sort of public platform, because I've always known I've been like a creative and expressive person, a writer, and I've always felt very open about how I feel and what I'm going through. But whenever it's come to putting that on a public space, it's always taken a lot of guts and a lot of silencing myself and um, and checking and checking and checking again and, and checking again and 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 often ending up with what's the point? Um, what's the point of this? What's the point in saying what you think? And also wondering is, is what you think, is that you're going to think that next week? Are you saying this because this is in a sort of particular trend or how will it be received? And, and, um, I've had these real silencing forces in my life from a young age. And I suppose that is what this podcast is about. And it's me, trying to battle those demons and I don't know I'm sure I'm sure there are people who will feel the same that you they you know they I think everyone constantly sort of checks oh should you say that shouldn't you say that and we're sort of working out the levels but when I say everyone I know plenty of people who seem quite happy with just what they say and when and you know they might have the odd oh shit I said that wrong thing but for me it goes to such a um, an existential level, I suppose, in a way, like, what am I allowed to say? What do I even think? And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because it does make me sad. Um, and it's, it's a hard thing as well, because I'm talking about, you know, a lot of the stuff we, a lot of the issues we, we get are sort of come from family or early experiences. And especially with family, you feel a guilt of talking about it openly. And also you feel, because you know that family is a web and you don't want to tangle anyone else up in the web that you are projecting you know what I say my family is is not what necessarily even my siblings will will have experienced or will recognize and also what they won't wouldn't talk about or wouldn't perceive as a problem and I'm grappling with a lot of things so whenever I start down one thread I think oh fuck where is this going what are you saying should you be saying it um and all the while thinking, why do you think you're so special? Who even cares? <laughs> Get on with your work, like whatever that work is, because I don't even know what my life's work is meant to be. Is life's work even a thing? Like I said, I always thought I was a creative and I never realised that the creatives I admire, they just got on with it. They just expressed themselves. And I'm sure they grappled with, oh, should I express myself enough or not? But I don't know, you see... We were watching The Rum Diary the other day, which is Andres Thompson's first novel that was published last or something like that. It's loosely based on him. And I watched that and I think, God, that is the person I want to be. I know that sounds insane. Like I look up to a lot of women and Andres Thompson, like people hate him for many reasons. But God, to live your life with that freedom and bravery and not caring about anything you know having fear having a healthy amount of fear but yeah whereas I've gone through my life thinking oh is this is this good writing is this good enough is this who I am is this 
rather than just being, I want to express myself. I want to put things down on a page and tell people. I want people to listen because it sounds so arrogant to do that. And I'll, you know, I'll add in, I'm in sort of working class background, um, but working class in that I didn't, I didn't really know I was working class and working class in a way that my family would, I think certain people in my family would think that's shameful to even say because, you know, how do you say we were poor? You know, we went poor. And it's like, well, no, we were by by many standards. And I felt that... Um, There's this shame, there's this real shame that I was raised with and I don't know if it's a class thing, I don't know if it's the fact that I was raised Muslim, I don't know where it came from, maybe I just gave it to myself, maybe there's something in me that's like you're going to feel ashamed half the time and you're going to sort of flip back and forth from feeling ashamed to feeling brave and just saying whatever. I'm going to have to listen back to the things I've said because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, I need to start writing notes. Um... Yeah, at the same time, I don't want to, oh, honestly, I feel like just stopping this and not doing anything. I'm trying to, I'm going to try and battle through. I know I must look like an idiot. I feel a bit like an idiot. I'm just putting a podcast out for no reason. I was going to um, tap into a few things today and like look up stuff about sense of self and religion and how that impacts us. Because I realised today, I've realised it for a while, but today I was <laughs> I was walking through the forest today, screaming, crying, <laughs> like bawling my eyes out. I don't quite know why yet. I mean, I I do, you know, and there's too many thoughts. There's too many thoughts at once to process, and I'm fine. I'm gen like genuinely I'm one of those people who will cry when she says she's fine but I'm fine but it dawned on me I have had this label for so long this label of being Muslim and I wrote about it in the independent this week and I think it's only when I wrote that article that it really sort of cemented it in my head that I had that label for so long and and I tried to be that label you know it was imposed upon me I was Muslim I was told I was Muslim but I was in that very opposition of being a white Muslim. So I had to act act more Muslim than other people. I had to show my religion. And it became everything. And I think um, part of me wonders whether the Muslim thing was what I clung to because I didn't understand the Iranian side of me or even the English side of me properly because they both, they both felt completely in conflict. And being a Muslim gave me a rule book. Um... And that rule book, you know, it's not one set rule book. Lots of people have different opinions on on what it is. And, you know, your parents will have an opinion and and everything. But yeah, I was Muslim for so long. And then I wasn't. And, and I wasn't because I... I stopped calling myself Muslim probably in my early 20s. But, and then I started... I sort of thought maybe I'm ex-Muslim. Do I relate to people who call themselves ex-Muslim? I'm like, well, not really. Because I don't, you know, why should I, why? Why do I have to, so many people call themselves Muslim and they don't spend their lives proving how Muslim they are to other people. A lot of people do, but. So I um, had this strong label and 
it was an external label from like the media as well. So um, when I was 16, I went to the Arab Emirates, I went to Sharjah and I wrote um, a research paper. Um, I was, I represented the UK at this International Muslim Women's Conference. And it was hosted by the Sheikh of Sharjah. And you had to fit certain criteria to, to go there. You had to, um, you know, wear a headscarf, pray five times a day, you know, uphold the five pillars of Islam, which are Sam, Zakah, Salah. Um, oh my God. Sam, Zakat, Salah. Shahada is the first one. Hajj, obviously. <laughs> Hajj is one of the pillars. Is it Hajj? Yeah, it is just Hajj, isn't it? Oh my God. I need to I need to double check this. But that will be if I literally just Yep. Yeah, pilgrimage. My own name. So but five pillars of Islam. And uh, you had to sort of make sure you upheld the five pillars of Islam. Um upheld that you know what I mean. And so yeah, I got to go on this to this conference and I had to write a research paper and I got the prize for best research paper. And after that, I, well, I'd already had some work experience at um, a local Muslim foundation or Muslim foundation. And um, through that, I had met a BBC producer and she taught us how to do like thought for the day sessions. She was reaching out to sort of different religious communities. And I um, told her about this experience and told her I'd won. And then she interviewed me and I did another thought for the day for her. And I then um, got to do work experience at BBC Radio Leicester. And I made programmes, made BBC Radio programmes by the age of 18. And um, all of this was in a headscarf and I constantly got called by radio station. I was on the BBC sort of list, I guess. they would. I was in the top of their address book for young British Muslim. And so, yeah, I was British Muslim from, you know outside in and um and I believed in it like I'm not going to say oh I, I only acted Muslim it's like I believed in it every fiber of my being I sat on my prayer mat after prayers and asked for forgiveness for all the things I'd done wrong and resolved every day to be better every day um and that was my life. That was my life. I was very, very religious. And I think I was also very, very spiritual. And then um, I sort of, yeah, I lost, I, lo I lost it. I went to university and um, I'd already not worn my headscarf every now and again. And I think that was mainly because I um, just wanted to look nice. You know what I mean? I wanted to fit in. I wanted to look pretty. You know, I... Was I think I was a fairly pretty teenager, and you do, you know, I definitely felt flirtatious with boys, and I played more footsie than I should have done with the odd one here and there, and um, I was always very tactile, but I always felt so ashamed, so so ashamed, and um, and so when I went to university and had a boyfriend, and that's another load of stuff to unpack in my head, but I had a boyfriend and um. And I sort of, yeah, I didn't wear a headscarf. And I stopped wearing a headscarf because, mainly because I wasn't acting Muslim. And I was so aware that if I don't act Muslim, and I wasn't drinking, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't 
doing anything. And I was doing less than a lot of Muslim girls I know now do. Like I know loads of Muslim women who are jabbies and they have boyfriends and they have sex and some of them even drink and stuff and they don't feel as conflicted as I did. But I didn't know anyone like that at the time. And um, and it was just a weird thing. You couldn't sort of be white and Muslim, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I stopped wearing headscarf. And then I tried to find all these other labels that fitted me. And my boyfriend at the time, he was like, he had like the, for me, the, the perfect, the perfect life. Like he embodied this idyllic middle-class life to me. And I think I, I ended up going to a very posh uni without realizing um, I didn't get accepted into any of, the, <laughs> any of the others. But he embodied this, yeah, this perfect life. I just remember Christmas at his house and it was, in this beautiful village and we went to church and I was very aspirational. I've remembered what I was talking about about 10 minutes ago now about the work, work, the class thing, about not feeling, you know, being working class, but knowing that education was what you meant to do and all that sort of thing. So we sort of middle class brain, working class situation. And, and yeah, and I thought maybe I could be that. Could I fit in there? And I couldn't. Um, there's... You know, you don't, when you don't have money and you don't have a foundation like a lot of people do, you know, it's kind of like Gatsby, you know? Um, Although I always forget the meaning of that book every time I mention it. And yeah, um, so, but I didn't realize, I realized, I think I, at the time, I thought I was, I had what it took to, to be to be that way, to fit in with these parties and this lifestyle. And I didn't, I didn't have the foundations. And by that point I knew, I knew my childhood hadn't been the easiest. But of course everyone else, everyone had struggles. Everyone had their own stuff to go through and identity issues at uni, but I never felt understood. I think I felt spent my life trying to feel understood. And I think this podcast is about knowing you'll never be understood. Like that's the point. It's your brain is yours people can know can connect with you at certain times but that deep deep understanding you can only get from yourself and I think that's why I've been avoiding um because it's hard it's hard to know ultimately you're on your own anyway yeah I know this is sounding extremely subdued and I hoped it would be this loud and proud thing but I'm not feeling very loud and proud I'm feeling brave um which is why I'm going to put this out and you know, all I can, all I can be is authentic. Whenever I do these podcasts and interviews, I sort of adopt that Radio 4 tone and, you know, make use of the training I had um, because I always want to seem like this certain version of me and I'm not that person, um, I don't think. Anyway, so yeah, this label, this Muslim label, and I felt it on the inside, but I think I just had to ignore it for a long time. And I went in and out. I remember having the odd time on the prayer mat. I still, I still pray. I still, I still say the surahs when I'm on a flight, you know. <laughs> but it, I don't think I ever realised what that um, void had left. So, yeah, this moment in the forest today, I was leaving a voice note for my friend while I just, I couldn't couldn't control the tears, couldn't control the sense of complete loss. 
and confusion and I'm, I shouldn't be sharing this I know I shouldn't but um hey it's a day you know it's just one day it's not this is not my every day but I think sometimes things are interesting to explore and talk about when they're sort of at their most raw like I said it's about being authentic and trying to trying to not be ashamed and knowing that I know we have this it's kind of a weird culture that we we don't quite this culture where we don't quite know where we fit where we stand on the whole sharing stuff online you know we'll mock people acting like wet wipes when they're crying into tiktok or whatever like that and you think oh god just you know call a friend control yourself why does it have to be everywhere and then at the same time we also know oh the world we're in is kind of either more accepting about that or um, crudely if you're like building a brand or whatever you have to be authentic you have to be yourself so it's it's hard to know i think we have so much shame so much shame around talking and at the same time I'm not necessarily one of those people that thinks we should just all be pouring out everything we think or feel. But I do think creativity has changed. I think the creatives have always been the ones to do that. And yes, we're all creative and we all have this stuff in us. But it's always been personality types. Um, Yeah, it's just doing what's in your nature, I suppose. I feel it's always felt like it's in my nature to talk. And I, uh, but the last few years has, yeah shifted a lot of things anyway so back to this muslim label um and yeah i realized uh when i was sort of beside myself um like what have i been trying to do these last eight it's been 18 years since i took off the headscarf i'm 36 so for half half my life i've not worn a headscarf but the most formative years i was in one and i spent that time proving i think that maybe this is it it's i spent that time proving to other people who I was, proving to my dad, proving to people around me, proving to the BBC when they interviewed me, I'm Muslim enough, I'm Muslim enough, I'm this young British Muslim and I'm proud to be Muslim and I just think all the pressure we put on people um, when our labels are weirdly, um, you know, religious labels are very delicate because a religion is something you believe and it's something you act and the idea that we make people stick with a, a label like religion for their whole lives, like it's it's not a constant for everyone, is it? It's, um, you know, religion is, means rules, you know? <laughs> um, it's a set of rules that you follow. And we expect people to follow the same set of rules their whole lives. Um, or believe in the same thing their whole lives. I don't know. I know there is like a conflation of like um, religion and, and ethnicity or nationality for certain people, but it's really annoying to me that I felt more strongly a Muslim than I did like half Iranian. Like I didn't, even though I lived in Iran, was where my earliest memories were made. But um, yeah, I sort of feel like I've lost that. Anyway, I know this is just must be so self-indulgent and it's I don't even know what I'm saying or what I'm doing with this weird opener of a first episode. Um it's more like a really bad video diary. I've yeah. I've spent a long time trying to figure out what this label is without having any understanding that 
no label is fixed. I think I was maybe looking for a label that would be my identity. So I wanted to be a writer for a long time. And sometimes I thought maybe I am just a singer. Maybe I can be a singer. I don't mean just a singer. Like maybe that's the thing I am. And maybe like with comedy, maybe I'm a comedian. And especially as I know that people say you have to you know, stick at the one thing. Stick at one thing at a time. That's never been my personality. And I've been hoping that a label will fill that void, I think. I've been hoping that some sort of job or career would fill that void, but I haven't put the time in that a lot of other people would have put into it. You know, it's like, fuck, I'm 36. Imagine if when I was 22, I was like, fuck this. I'm going to be an investment banker and fuck everything else in my life. Um, uh, What foundation I would have built for myself now? And I never looked at life that way because I was always convinced that you know working for the man was a bad thing and I had a a real sense of hopelessness and pointlessness about everything which I shouldn't blame my dad for but bless him he did uh did make me feel that whatever I did was pointless literally there was nothing to celebrate nothing I'm, I didn't want this to be like this. I, I don't like sounding pitiful and like I'm feeling sorry for myself. And it doesn't tally up with how I actually view myself rationally or how I view anything rationally. But yeah, like these things have just gone round around my head. And I don't know where to start and stop with them. Like, it would be amazing to just go, we're not going to think about this anymore. She's not going to think about it. You're just going to have to write something else. You're just going to have to make jokes about something else. But then it's your identity. Sort of. The thing I don't have is what I am. Like, it's part of me, isn't it? It's part of my nature. It's part of my character. How I was raised. It's shaped me and it's and maybe I am just one of those personalities that is meant to think about it maybe that's like this trap that I'm in anyway so I was wondering about religious identity and how much it affects us as kids um, whether it's a good or a bad thing and funnily enough the research is inconclusive um, what I've found few studies some american website um this is from a university um byu brigham young university private research university <laughs> that is sponsored by the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints cool i wonder what they say about the link between religion and self-esteem interestingly uh they do seem i mean i've only skimmed it but they even write, interestingly, religion has been largely ignored in the search for the forces behind self-esteem. Given the significance that religion plays in the lives of our teenagers, their religious beliefs, feelings and activities should have an impact on their feelings of self-worth. Oh, right, okay. Their relig- Right. 
the commas were just throwing me, but yeah. Um, the perceptions of being a child of God, insights into the purpose of life, the promise of forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, as well as involvement in a caring organization may strengthen self-worth. <sighs> the few studies that have explored the relationship between religiosity and self-esteem in adolescence have produced mixed results. Some have noted that religion facilitated high self-esteem, most found no relationship, and a few discovered that religion actually produces lower feelings of noted, lower feelings of noted, that religion actually produces lower feelings of self-worth. A recent study among a national sample of 8th grade students found that religious involvement was strongly related to self-esteem. The authors concluded, the present study also points out that religious involvement appears to have the largest impact on how early adolescents evaluate themselves. Adolescents who are not involved in religious activities are less likely than those who are religiously involved to evaluate themselves in a positive way and more likely than those who are religiously involved to evaluate themselves in a negative way. This finding seems to indicate that most churches teach people to have positive images of themselves and thus positive teaching may be able to influence early adolescent self-evaluations. I do like actually how the, the, the title is religion when they're speaking about very specific um, religions and denominations. Self-worth emerges from many sources and thus we study the relationship between religiosity and self-worth in the context of peer relationships, school experiences and family traits and experiences. Much research has been done in recent decades. Uh, however, results have been mixed. Um, cool helpful um obviously if you are religious and you're currently religious your self-esteem will probably be all right because religion is about giving yourself to an other it's about knowing that the world doesn't start and finish with you that there is a higher purpose especially with you know christianity in terms of new testament teachings you know, um, love, love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and love thy neighbor as, as thyself. And, you know, this is seen as like the commandment uh, that Jesus left. Like love was the most important thing. I'm sure I'm butchering what I was taught at school. But so, yeah, if you're feeling strong in your religion, of course you'll feel, you know, like you've got better self-esteem, I imagine. It's just what's left after, because if you link your self-esteem to your religion, what happens when it's gone? <laughs> it's like linking your self-esteem to anything. What happens when it's not there? Are we even meant to be so self-sufficient? Like, you know, it's like relationships. I think, oh, if you put all everything into a relationship, then you lose that person. Then that's it. You know, what are you without them? So make sure you hold on to enough for yourself. It's like, well, is, is that life? Is that life? Do I just need to find another religion? Is that, is that, is that the thing? Let's actually, let's put up a couple of extra things. Religion and you. <laughs> okay, this is life science. You know, like, talking about the queen and stuff. And, um, they want to stop, you know, they're stopping events. How about stop advertising? Imagine if we just stopped advertising for two days out of respect like that would be fucking amazing if we just banned advertising instead of banning people earning money <laughs> let's read this religion impacts health many people are dear to religion for the sake of their souls but it turns out that regular participation in faith-based activities is good for the body and mind too yeah tell me something new like obviously obviously 
it's going to be like, this is the thing. It's not being part of something is obviously going to make you feel good. It's when you don't feel part of that thing anymore, when you don't feel that you fit. And also my religion was like, we were an isolated religious family. We weren't part of a big community. We had like two families that were similar to us. And that was it. You either knew Pakistani community or the English community. And you didn't fit with either. Um, it's this weird thing that, yeah. And I wonder, like, oh God, I wonder if I'm doing that to myself. Like creating that isolation. Whether it's been triggered by um, by the pandemic and everything. This is going to be so embarrassing. I'm probably not going <laughs> to... I will share it. I'm going to share it because why not? I'm trying to edit it a little bit. But yeah, thinking of God could help you avoid a researcher's junk food temptation, but willpower in the lab might not translate to healthy habits in real life. Okay, that's quite a leap to go from, um, yeah, religion could make you help you realist What? Okay, the whole, I don't understand what I've just read. I mean, I haven't read it properly, obviously. Um, so it's like, religion and you, religion could help you resist junk food, but it could make you fat. It could put a smile on your face and raise self-esteem if you live in the right place, could soothe anxiety, protect against depressive symptoms, motivates doctor visits, lowers your blood pressure. Yeah, funnily enough, this news site provides news to, like, you know, major, big news channels that I can't be able to get into. Um, spirituality in the sense of self and inductive analysis. This looks more interesting. See, next time maybe I will read this stuff and then talk. Um, the investigation examined the understanding of spirituality as related to the sense of self. Self reports from semi-structured interviews of participants with a stated value for spirituality are analysed inductively. Using a Rogerian, as in Roger, Ian, uh, understanding of self, the analysis identified six themes related to how participants understand spirituality as related to their sense. Academics, fucking hell. The themes de demonstrate that spirituality is a key dimension to self-understanding and is part of relationships, social engagement, an understanding of meaning and purpose in life and an overall sense of happiness and joy. Okay, so they found that spirituality. Who knew? And spirituality feels like the one thing that is missing from my life right now because I only had it through religion and I automatically think of spirituality and God and then I think I'm going to hell. So. And that's all I find. Thine own, okay, National Library of Thine Own Self, True Self-Concept, Accessibility and Meaning in Life. I'll read you the abstract from this study from the National Library of Medicine. Um, a number of philosophical and psychological theories suggest that true self is an important contributor to well-being. The present research examined whether the cognitive accessibility of the true self-concept would predict the experience of meaning in life to ensure that any observed efforts would do were due to the true self-concept rather than self-concept more generally, we utilise actual self. I can't deal with it. You've <laughs> said so many times. Ah! Um, studies one and two show that individual differences in true self-concept accessibility, but not differences in actual self. <sighs> You've made it too hard. The present study ex examined the connection between the true self and the opposite of despair and an opposite of despair, the experience of meaning in life. Drawing on diverse psychological theories as well as evidence from the social cognitive literature we propose that the true self-concept or a person's avowed true self serves as an important source of meaning in life thus the more cognitively accessible this self-concept is to the individual the more the individual should benefit from the perspective it fosters 
while eudaimonic, humanistic, existential and psychodynamic perspectives on the role of the true self in psychological functioning provide a basis for hypotheses. Social cognitive research and theory inform the methods we use to assess assess and manipulate the cognitive assessment. Okay. Right. So I think I think they're stating the obvious with that as well. Fuck me. Anyway. So that was a lot of garble 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 garbles. And I'm sorry it's not this really clear, coherent podcast I'd hoped to put out. So I have one on the Edinburgh Fringe. I also have some really, some quite heartbreaking episodes coming up as well. Like beautiful ones, so really like generous guests have spoken to me about deeply personal things that they've gone through. Um, You know, there's a lot of grief. Um, There's also, there's also a lighter hearted one as well. My friend Jen talks about travel and we sort of briefly talk about the, you know, she's half Spanish, half English. And I talk about the half Iranian thing and, and she talks about her travel buys and what, what she takes traveling with her because she travels a lot. And um, then a friend of mine, Amanda, talks about polyamory as well, which is really interesting. So there's lots of there's lots of stuff. I'm really sorry. This first one is um, just a bit odd and a bit flat, but I think. just who cares you know what I mean who fucking cares (laughs) who cares what you say I would say this stuff in public at a bar very loudly and um but at least this way you have the option to turn it off and maybe (laughs) maybe that's why I need to podcast so that um I don't have to make people listen to me scream in a forest um so it will be a every Friday I'm gonna put one of these out and I just need to edit those um there was meant to be a live episode that we recorded yesterday called Harfies, but I took the decision to cancel that because of the Queen. Um, well, it was just as she got ill, I decided to cancel it um, before the announcement uh, because it was very miserable weather. The ticket sales hadn't. We would have had it. We would have had a small crowd, but I didn't want to. And but one of my friends' um, children was was sick, and I didn't want to drag her away for um, for that really. When but we will record it properly. And um, I hope you'll listen, whoever you are, um, probably just a few of my concerned friends. Um, yeah, Muslim identity, that was the main thing. And then trying to find a label that fits. I don't know. Um, we'll see. My main thing that I'm trying to do is get some regularity uh, in terms of work. It's funny, isn't it, finding this sort of life of fulfilment? And I think pursuing a life of fulfillment doesn't really, I don't know, doesn't seem to work for me. (laughs) I I think I would have been better just getting any job and not worrying about it. But God, to be one of those people that don't worry about it. Um, Anyway, yes. So, yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment is trying to get this regular. Because it is, like I said, you know, it's Noisy Hadger podcast. It is just trying trying to say what feels authentic and trying not to care too much not intended as therapy but maybe (laughs) maybe that's maybe that's what's happening anyway thank you so much for listening and I hope you keep tuning in Uh, do subscribe it would be lovely to just get to know some more people it's been a lonely few years to be honest this is me trying to sort of emerge from from the woodwork a bit so 
Thank you and I will see you next time. Thank you.